recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 20 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Cam McMurchy, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroonllp.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, get the word out. We appreciate that a lot. And you can follow us on LinkedIn to make sure you don't miss an episode. Actually, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And our account name is PR Law Podcast, all one word, PR Law Podcast. You can support us on Patreon as well by going to our website, prlawpodcast.com, and click support the show. And we're happy to take your questions as well. You can tag us on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. We will get your question and we will answer it in a future show. Ewan, what's happening? Oh, good, Cam. So I want to, first of all, I got to give a shout out to my lovely wife and of course she's also a pr and law podcast super fan it's uh it's her birthday today oh wow happy so, birthday and uh yeah is she a super fan on her own accord or is she kind of feel a bit <laughs> obligated <laughs> well i'm hey i'm sure it's probably a little column a, a little column b but um you know it, it, it's sort of a always a weird thing the day after we load the show because of course for the most part, um, she and I are, are, are still working from home. So she'll kind of be in the office and I'll be walking by and I'll think, oh, is that me speaking or, or, or I will overhear either you or me. She always listens to the show loyally the the day that it uh, that it's posted while she's sitting working. So I, I think you know what I hope she likes it <laughs> you know what's weird though is like and I don't know if I'm weird with this I don't know if other people who have podcasts listening to this way you think about it but like I, I almost never tell people about the podcast and I never tell I, I absolutely never tell anyone to listen but because I feel like it's so presumptuous like our, our show is an hour long and it's dealing on two very very specific subjects of PR and law and I just kind of automatically assume that people like that I know are not in these fields, which is not that be that interested in it. So I don't bring it up. I don't know if that's like a, a low self-esteem thing or if that's kind of a practical way to look at it. Because if someone was doing a show on, I don't know, like um, gardening or pruning hedges or something, and they asked me to listen to the, an hour of them talking about it, I'd probably feel a little, you know, like I'd be trying to avoid it. <laughs> so I'd never want to put someone in that position. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same way. I'm, I'm certainly not walking around with, uh, you know, a T-shirt advertising the show maybe hey maybe maybe i should be maybe that'd be a good idea but yeah i don't really uh i don't really make mention of it yeah that's said probably for the same reason Mm -hmm. i just i don't want to be presumptuous and that you would be interested in what we're talking about but that said though i mean i am surprised the number of people that do listen and that message me privately or send me a message through twitter uh it's amazing it's really really encouraging i know uh, jesse smith is one of them who's uh someone that we have not kept in touch with at all uh we knew him years and years ago uh, and he's i know one of the guys that listens each week and so uh, that's that's great to hear. Um, Ewan, uh, one of the big things I just wanted to bring up off the top, uh, the Democratic Convention was this week. Uh, did you get a chance to see any of the speeches from that? 
Yeah, I did. Actually, I saw a bunch. I, I saw Barack Obama's. I saw Kamala Harris's. I saw um, Biden's. I even watched Biden's wife's speech. Um, and oh, no. And I watched uh, Bill Clinton's speech as well. So, yeah, I saw I saw I saw kind of the big ones. I wish I could have seen more. I mean, the time difference uh, in Asia is a little bit difficult. But just today, I watched um, uh, President Obama's speech. Um, and I had seen some commentary of it online, including, I think it was David Pluff or, um, I can't remember if it was Pluff or Axelrod, who worked on his campaign, uh, but said that his his speech was actually quite alarmist for him, that it was very, very serious. And so I did watch it. And I thought it was actually an incredible speech. I mean, I know Obama is already, we all know he's quite gifted, uh, a gifted orator, but um, his speech was a real call to arms that I haven't heard from him before. Uh, it was quite powerful. Yeah, I, I, th- I thought it was good too. It's interesting. I was speaking with a, a friend of mine who, uh, is, you know, is quite, quite conservative and really, really despises Obama and cannot stand uh, the way that the way that he speaks, in fact. Um, and we were we were sort of chatting about the speech and I was I suggested that he watch it. I don't know that he did, but it, it I thought what was really effective, um, you know, one thing that I think has has become really frustrating for me in watching politics is this idea, this sense of of uh, elitism. There's always this criticism that that politicians are coming across as, as elitist, as if to sound articulate and be well-spoken should be considered, um, you know, a, a problem as, as a public speaker and as a politician. And I think that that's just fundamentally wrong. And, and I've, I've watched too many speeches over the years where I feel as though politicians have attempted to quote unquote, sort of dumb down the talk and I think that that's really unfortunate. I think it it's insulting the intelligence of, of your viewership. And I think it sort of takes away from what you bring to the table as an elected official in terms of demonstrating, well, why should we be listening to you? Um, and I, and I think in the past, Obama's had a tendency to sort of, you know, put on this, this, this sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. There's something that changes in his cadence almost as if he's trying to sort of dumb down the talk. And I felt like in this speech, he didn't do that. And it may simply have been that he wasn't doing it in front of a live audience. And I think, um, you know, and I'm certainly interested to get your take on this, Cam, as a, as a PR guy. Um, but I think that that can really play to the advantage of the politician in not having that live audience, right? I mean, it's, it's, if it's, if it's recorded a pre-recorded speech, or even if it's just live in front of a camera, um, they're given a lot more latitude in terms of trying to convey a, a powerful message. You know, that's interesting. I had not actually even considered that in this case, but you're absolutely right. Now, usually the crowd is a, is a positive because it, you can read off the crowd. I mean, it's like, it's like a music, uh, like a band or a, or a stand-up comedian. You feed off the energy of the crowd and you develop sort of a, that conversation on stage with yourself or your band and the, and the crowd. So in general, I think it's, it's, it's a positive thing. But in this case, um, it looked more like, it reminded me a bit of, you know, George H.W. Uh, Bush announcing sort of the, the uh, liberation of Kuwait or the start of the, the Gulf War. Because when you're, when you're speaking just to a camera, it's very, very intimate. You can see that there's probably only a couple of people in that room with Obama and for his speech, the camera guy and maybe a couple of producers or something. 
Um, and it's quiet and he can speak directly to the camera. Um, and I think for the, for this message that he gave, which was a very serious message, and it looks like one he really wants people to listen to and take to heart and then take action on. I think it was a much better uh, setup, a much better environment for that kind of speech in particular. So I think that 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 worked. But in general, I think the crowd does does often help quite a bit. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of think of this you know, in, in thinking of film, the idea of if you go back and you try and watch sort of a, a you know, what would be considered a top tier film from the late 50s and compare it with something that came out last year. The, the way that the actor performs is fundamentally different because, you know, they were dealing in a in, in a time where, you know, things were still predominantly in black and white. There's no high definition television. The ability for the camera to convey what the actor was doing um, was far more far more difficult. So the actor and the performance had to be bigger. They had to be more exaggerated, more animated. Whereas today, you know, with, with high definition television, the camera can capture the minutia in someone's face, right? I mean, just the way that they, they blink or the way that their eye might, might twinkle or the light catches it, all of those things can be captured by a camera. And I thought that that was part of it too. in watching Obama's speech, because it was to your point, that that level of intimacy that the camera captures everything right and it can be you can be small you can be smaller and yet still convey a very very big message whereas when you're sort of in front of a live crowd in a stadium of you know tens of thousands of people it's far more difficult to be quiet when you when you need to be quiet and to be smaller in terms of conveying your message and facial expression, um, you lose a lot of that stuff. So I thought that in many regards, it was sort of, sort of interesting that, um, it, it, it helped make the message almost more effective. And I'm, I'm curious to see how, uh, the Republican convention sort of reflects that, or if it does reflect that, that <laughs> sense as well. I, I, I don't think it's going to be anything like it. Um, and, and by the way, uh, so, so a couple of things I just want to touch on quickly that, that you mentioned. One, yeah, the, the, the HD or the 4K, uh, oftentimes, I saw it uh, via NBC on YouTube. It was in high def. And yes, yeah, I felt like you could see, because the camera was quite tight, uh, you could see emotion on his face. You could see emotion in his eyes. Um you could see that it was a difficult message to deliver. I, I don't think Obama is necessarily a good actor per se. I think you can tell when he's trying to put put on some kind of a, a show or something outside of what he would normally do. So I felt that those things were, were genuine. Um, but to compare that, I mean, uh, if several weeks ago, I can't remember how this happened, but I ended up going down a, a bit of a YouTube rabbit hole on Jack Parr, um, the host, the original host of The Tonight Show before even Johnny Carson. And um, I mean, obviously I've heard his name a few times, but other than that, I don't know anything about him. And I, and I did watch a few old videos. And you're right, Ewan, it's, it's startling, actually, how distant it feels, because the technology back then was quite rudimentary to, compared to what it is today. And he has to be very big and bombastic, and lots of arm movements and waving around and walking around, because you can't see the details. So, so those bigger movements become much more, more important. And I think it's great that now that we can see these sort of, these small details that can, that can make quite a difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, again, it will be interesting to see uh, sort of compare and contrast uh, the two well, conventions. Yeah, I mean, the um, last thing I'll the say different, different approaches on this too is, um, I mean, 
President Trump and President Obama have very different speaking styles, needless to say. Uh, but President Trump is effective, too. Um, I, I don't necessarily. Well, actually, you know, I, I do in the past. And I think I've mentioned this to you before that, you know, I've had friends who just play Trump speeches because they're so ridiculous uh, and entertaining. And it's almost bizarre, like a like a like a train crash, like what you might see uh, or hear if you listen to him. But I do think he's been really effective as well in his way of, of getting the spotlight and getting attention and, and getting his, his, his fans slash followers slash voters uh, to take action. So it will be interesting to see what the Republicans come up with. Oh, well, absolutely. And look, and let's, you know, I mean, let's, let's be clear here. I mean, whether you loved Obama's speech or you hated Obama's speech, Obama read a speech off of a teleprompter right? And I understand he was able to sort of convey the message effectively. We can talk about the fact that he's a good orator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, this isn't, that wasn't a man speaking off the cuff. Um, And to your point, that is precisely what people love about Trump. And I get that. I, I, I get that idea that, you know, he will he will completely disregard the teleprompters. He will speak off the cuff. He will convey a message that that really, really resonates with his audience in a way that few politicians love him, love him or hate him, but in a way that few politicians have done and have been able to do um, in, in some time. I really want to make this point. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I, I don't like the fact that the teleprompter gets a bad rap. And I've heard even my own father gets quite, uh, he uses the teleprompter as a way to kind of uh, bash Obama's speaking. I mean, I've, I've worked with so many companies over the years. A teleprompter is used all the time for politicians of all kinds, for, for speakers of all kinds at events. They're, they're not like a, a crutch that, you know, poor people with poor memory rely on or something like that. Um, they're used everywhere. Um, and secondly, if they're not installed, then most people have a, a, a written version of their speech that they follow uh, when they're up at the podium or they're on stage. This is the vast, vast majority of everyone who speaks publicly. What Trump does is unique, yes, and he's uh, talented at um, uh, at speaking that way, especially for his own for his own fans. But you would ask, you know, if if, if he's got three, and again, from a PR perspective, you'll say, you know, President Trump, go out there. We want to drill home these three messages messages, there's a good chance he won't get to those three messages. He'll speak for an hour and a half and he, he may not touch on the things that you need him to touch on. Um, so while it's entertaining, it's actually not really an effective way. Uh, you have to be very talented to hit those messages and be able to speak off the cuff. So I, I don't think using a teleprompter is, is any kind of a, a knock on somebody at all. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. So if you recall, way, way back in episode 12, um, we spoke briefly about Uber and this was following a case here in Canada um, regarding an individual who's been trying to bring a class action proceeding to sue Uber here in Canada on the basis that um, he believes he's been misclassified as an independent contractor when in fact he should be considered an employee of Uber. And of course, there are 
all kinds of implications in terms of that distinction, right? I mean, the big ones are if you're classified as an employee, um, you know, there are things like access to sick pay, unemployment insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, paid vacation, um, all, all of these things. And we talked about at the time, Cam, you know, people said, oh, well, you know, it's sort of that's just, you know, in, indicative of kind of the left leaning courts that you've got up there in Canada. And I said, well, actually, that's not entirely true because there's a similar situation brewing down in California and that I wouldn't be surprised if the California courts sort of lean in a similar, similar direction. And wouldn't you know it, of course, uh, things have come to a head, as you may have seen, Cam, this has been all over the press. And I think it's good that it's all over the press, because whether or not you're you care about Uber and Lyft and ride shares or you're interested um, in sort of what's going on in the state, it does speak to the larger implications of the gig economy and the distinction between independent contractors and employees. So. Um, you following me so far? I, I am. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. So on August 10th, so did quite, quite recently, a California court uh, ruled that Uber and Lyft drivers are in fact employees and not independent contractors under the, the state's gig work law. This is this AB5 law that we talked about. Um, again, we talked about this in, in one of the episodes, I think it was episode 12 as well, Cam. And the AB5, this is a law in California, came into effect in January 1, and it applies this thing known as the, the ABC test to determine if someone is a contractor or an employee, okay? So the courts effectively determined, no, Uber and Lyft, um, your drivers are not, in fact, independent contractors. They are employees. Mm -hmm. So um, it, we thought, hey, maybe that's going to be the end of it. Um, but of course, it, it wasn't. Very quickly, things took a turn. So Uber and Lyft, following the decision, um, were considering all kinds of options, one of which was just shutting down their operations entirely uh, in the state of California, talking about you know, this is just going to, it's going to crush our business. And, you know, here's some of the reasons why this is such a big deal, Cam. I mean, we're talking a lot of dough here. Um, I mean, oh, yeah. some analysts, some analysts predict that Uber, it would cost Uber basically an additional $500 million a year and lift $200 million a year if they had to pay American drivers as employees, right? And of course, everybody knows and everybody understands that this isn't just going to be a California issue, that all of the state legislatures are going to be looking to California to see how this plays out to then govern what will inevitably be arguments in a number of states. Um, and probably, you know, this is just going to have a domino effect in terms of trying to reclassify drivers uh, as employees rather than independent contractors. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So I know, uh, I mean, there's the, there's the employment law angle here. I know your personal view on, on Uber and Lyft uh, as well. I think um, if, if, if these companies have to treat their drivers as employees, I think that actually upends the entire business model and it makes their, their um, you know, going concern questionable. Um, so I think it's that big of a, a deal because it's based on, you know, the, the rider, the drivers are paid a bit, the, the, the passengers can get around a little more cheaply. Uh, and this is sort of, 
free for people to use as, as they wish. Um, so I, but I think there's a couple of things because in, in, in reading about this case, it looks like the, 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 the challenge is coming from the full-time drivers uh, of Uber and Lyft. And they're saying they're working, you know, 40 hours a week and they're relying on it as their primary uh, means of income. Um, and they're saying because, because of that, that they should, you know, have some benefits or they should have some protections um, or should be paid as employees. And um, I understand the argument there, but I think, you know, on a, on a again, I, I don't want to get um, political on something like this, but I do think to some degree that, you know, Uber and Lyft created the service and said drivers may drive under these conditions and they will be paid this way. Um, and no one's held a gun to anybody's head to do it. Um, and they've gone ahead and done it. And I think people have you're not going to get rich driving Uber. You're not going to get rich driving a taxi either. Uh, but it's certainly been a big help to a lot of people. So I think it's a little disingenuous to then turn around and say, you created this, gave me the option to do it. I agreed to do it according to your terms, but, but now I want you to overhaul your entire business model to suit me. That's a tough sell for me. Yeah. Look, um, you know, there, there's a lot of really, really interesting arguments on both sides of this, right? Legal and political. You know, I, I mean, in terms of your first argument, I mean, I, I, I think it's sort of an easy one to kind of get around from a legal perspective. I mean, in theory, any two individuals could contract on any sort of employment relationship. And you could argue that, well, if the employee agreed, um, then, you know, what what does it matter? Well, the reality is, is that you cannot contract with anyone on anything um, and in doing so contract out of statutory entitlements and and rights. This is why we have laws. So even if you agree to contract on something that is outside the parameters or legal framework of a particular statute, that contract by definition is is unenforceable. You can't you can't do that. So but I mean, putting putting that issue aside, you know, one of the things that that Uber um, has said, which is sort of interesting, is there's been this whole argument of, well, but the vast majority of of Uber and Lyft drivers are exactly what you think. They're part time drivers that are are driving to sort of supplement their income um, to give them some flexibility. All of the sort of arguments that sort of proponents of independent contractor relationships typically make. But what was sort of interesting and in kind of digging into the data cam is that, you know, there was a, a study, a Seattle study that was done that determined that at least one third of those Uber and Lyft drivers work more than 32 hours a week, right? So you think, okay, so basically you've got a third of your, your driver pool are working something approximating full-time hours. However, according to the study, these drivers account for 55% of all rides through the apps. So they already account for a disproportionate amount of the company's revenue, such that it's almost a little disingenuous to suggest that the vast majority of their drivers would prefer to have this independent contractor relationship. Of course, I'm, I'm sure they probably, I'm sure they probably would. But the reality is, is that these companies, they're not profiting and staying afloat on the basis of their part-time drivers. They're doing so on the basis of their full-time driving pool. And I think that that's something that's sort of been, been lost in the argument. Yeah. I, I mean, all of these things I, I, I fully understand. I mean, especially the, the not being able to contract around sort of, sort of that, that arrangement. Um, 
that's legally speaking, and I get it, and that's why we have a case. I, I'm looking at it, at it more from a, a business point of view because I think if if at the end of the day we determine that that there cannot be sort of a gig economy this way, set up this way, I think ultimately if we lose Uber and Lyft, if California ends up losing it, I think everyone's worse off as a result. I think the drivers are worse off because it's not like they can just go and get a job as a taxi driver, and I think passengers are worse off in terms of in terms of uh, getting around. That said, there are some issues to deal with that are sort of uh, endemic to the United States. I think one being benefits. I mean, obviously, healthcare is a big concern in the U.S. I don't think it should be a concern. I think most of the rest of the world has figured out a way to manage healthcare properly. Uh, but nonetheless, that's, that's going to be uh, an issue. And then the second one, uh, and this one to me is a bigger one, which is uh, the cost of insurance. So, I mean, obviously, if you're getting picked up by a driver who is, um, you know, working through Uber, you still want to know that you're protected and that your family's protected if they're in that car and your goods or whatever else, if something were to happen. And, I, and right now, that's not really the case. So those are things I think that need to be looked at. But while we look at those and try and find solutions to them, I would hope that we don't uh, end up losing the whole thing. Because again, if I were a young person now, I would love to be able to just flick a switch and, and make some money driving around on an afternoon. Uh, and I, I think it would just be a big mistake to, 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 to end that way of working. Well, you know, I, I think you, you, this is, this raises the other issue. And I think that there's, there's a fundamental sort of issue with the company's business model that I find actually really, really fascinating. And the inherent flaw here, if you're a driver, is that the more the company grows, right, the more Uber and Lyft grows, the more drivers there are on the streets, then it becomes sort of a simple reality, reality cam of, you know, supply demand economics, right? I mean, the more drivers you have on the street, the lower the cost of the rides, right? Great for the consumer. The lower the cost of the rides, the less money the drivers themselves are making. So you have this sort of bizarre relationship where the more successful the company becomes, the less money the drivers themselves are making in propping up the company. And, you know, and, and I think there's, there's another problem here and that's that you've got about, you know, according to the, the, the stats here, there's about 3 million drivers in the United States that are receiving unemployment benefits right now. And these are all paid for by tax dollars, right? Yet Uber and Lyft, because of this independent contractor relationship, they haven't contributed anything to these benefits. So you do have drivers that are receiving some benefits through government subsidies, employment insurance, what have you. Um, and yet Uber and Lyft are not contributing to these programs in any way. So in, in effect, you have tax dollars subsidizing their business model, whether they whether they support it or not, um, which I think is sort of another interesting angle that's that's kind of been lost here. Yeah, I think I mean, like I said off the top, the business model uh, is going to have to adjust. Uh, I think if you're if you're saying that these are employees, I honestly think that puts them out of business. I, I can't see how they can continue operating uh, at least this way. It would have to change the entire nature of the company. If we stand back and really look at this, this doesn't just apply to Uber and Lyft. There's a lot of companies out there that are the share economy, the gig economy, like Airbnb uh, and things like that, where 
um, there's no regulations yet, or the regulations are, are very thin, or they're piecemeal. Um, these changes have happened so fast uh, that we haven't been able to adjust. And so even now, like for Airbnbs, in some cities, it's okay to stay there. Some it's not. Some apartment buildings will will not let you rent out your, your property on short-term rentals. Some will. But there's no there's no real consensus on how, how to manage this kind of thing. Um, and I think these are all sort of kind of fallout from the tech revolution that we've uh, gone through, which includes, you know, the advertising and the fake news on Facebook and so on and so forth. These are all new challenges that have been created as a result of technology. And I think if we're going to try and do this piecemeal bit by bit, it's not going to work. I think we need to look at it a little more holistically. Yeah, well, and I think that that's a really good point. And it's actually something that came up that I thought was interesting in in the decision of the court itself, right? And this was something that the, the, the judge wrote. He, he said that... Um, to argue that Uber and Lyft drivers do not perform work that is outside the usual course uh, of their business, right? For Uber and Lyft to argue that their businesses are quote unquote, multi-sided platforms rather than transportation companies is flatly inconsistent. And this is the quote flatly inconsistent with the statutory provisions that govern their businesses as transportation network companies, which are defined as companies that engage in the transportation of persons by motor vehicle for compensation. Right. So I think Uber would, they would would reject this argument to try and make that they would reject. They are not these transportation companies, but to your point, and I, and I think this is where you're, you're absolutely right. Cam is that, you know, the court is effectively working within the statutory framework as it exists. And you're talking about companies and disruptors and Airbnb being another great example where, you know, they sort of are operating. We always talk about this sort of gray area, but the reality is, is that that gray area exists because in many cases the law has been slow to change or slow to recognize um, that a lot of these companies can't work within a traditional statutory framework. And until the law sort of catches up, yeah, I mean, a lot of these companies are going to get caught and continue to get caught, as, as is the case here with Uber and Lyft. Uber would push back very hard on your characterization of it as a transportation company. Um, I, so if, if you, if you again, if you stand back, Uber looks at it like they have created an app, uh, uh, some technology. And all that technology does is link a driver out there with some demand someone who needs a ride somewhere. And that's all they do. They link these two people together and then they do business between themselves. Uh, and that's why they don't consider, they, they don't drive anyone anywhere. They create an app and they update the app and they make sure it's usable for the drivers and for the riders to do business among themselves. Um, now, that is a little disingenuous too, because obviously, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but I can certainly see that side of it. Uber's not hiring drivers and sending them out there to do work on behalf of Uber. It's just, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't work that way. Um, Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're right. And of course that was precisely the argument that Uber and Lyft made, right? That they are, they're not a transportation network or company. They are a a quote unquote multi-sided platform. This was the term that. that, that, that they used. But I mean, in, in response to precisely what you just said, I mean, again, this was this is another quote from from the judge. He said, look, I mean, that argument, quote unquote, flies in the face of economic reality and common sense. To state the obvious, drivers are central, not tangential to Uber and Lyft's entire ride hailing business. Right. So, again, I think 
I think you're correct. And I think the judge is correct. I actually think both sides are are right. I mean, I think Uber is sort of correct in, in stating that, well, look, we are a multi-sided platform, right? Absolutely. And I think the judge is also correct in, in, in stating that, well, yeah, but drivers are essential. They're central and essential to your business model. They're not tangential. Um, I think, again, the problem here is, is that we're working within a statutory framework that, you know, was created long before um, multi-sided, quote unquote, platforms existed and applications and ride hailing technology. Um, and the statutes have, have yet to catch up. Yeah. And I think that's uh, the primary and fundamental issue here. And this is going to get worse. Um, I mean, the gig economy has been around now for 10, 10 years, probably. But I mean, there's new services coming out all the time. And um, this is not going to stop. And this is this is an example of governments not being too reactive, especially in the United States recently. I mean, when you have gridlock for long periods of time, um, these kind of issues can um, cannot get resolved easily. And uh, it's not just the US, but but in general, I think we're going to have to get government that is far more reactive and far more quick at seeing these seeing these situations develop and being proactive and trying to find a solution. We, we've got to move on. I just want to give the the tail end of the story because it's it's not over yet, Cam. So oh, okay. <laughs> on, on Thursday, on Thursday, an appeals court in California ruled that Lyft and Uber can continue to avoid classifying their drivers as employees. And they issued sort of a temporary stay on the order that would have forced the companies to uh, immediately reclassify their drivers as employees. Um, This stay was issued the day before the reclassification was to take effect. um, And it will remain, the stay will remain in effect while Uber and Lyft, um, while their appeal works its way through the courts. And now here's what's really, really interesting about this. So the court has scheduled arguments on this issue for October 13th, um, but it's unlikely that the court will issue a final ruling before the U.S. election on November 3rd. And the reason that that is significant is because on the ballot in California is, and we, we've we talked about this, we talked about this in episode 12 as well, I believe, Cam, Proposition 22. And this will allow voters in California to decide whether they want to pass Proposition 22. And if it was passed, if it is passed, it would explicitly classify app-based drivers as contractors rather than employees. Um, And Uber and Lyft have spent a great deal of money (laughs) in getting this on the ballot. Um, So this is far, 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 far from over. You know, I did see this. I would be so tempted and I would not do this because in communications, you're supposed to be uh, risk averse. I would be so tempted to pull services from now to the election. Because if you do that, I mean, there are a lot of people that rely on these two companies, especially in California. I'm I'm sure that's their top market, actually, in the U.S. and and maybe globally. I mean, that's where it started. And that's where a lot of people use both both companies. Um, It would be very tempting to pull out of there and saying, like, we we, we can't continue. Um, Because I think that galvanizes a lot of people to go to the ballot box on Election Day. Um, If it's a service that they they no longer have that they relied upon, I think people would would get out and galvanize to, to try and bring it back. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, there is uh, rideshare drivers united. They claim that Uber and Lyft would owe more than one point three 
billion dollars in payments to drivers in California if they were classified as employees. So yeah, huge amount of money on the table here. Yeah, we don't know um, how they calculate. But one thing that. I wanted to ask you about, Cam, from from a PR perspective, because I saw some people tweeting this out that when they were sort of pulling up the app in California, Uber and Lyft, um, I can't remember which one which one of the apps it was, but it effectively would redirect to an advertisement on Prop Twenty Two, and why you know it's important that um, the proposition passes. I, I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts of that on, on that sort of as a, as a marketing PR tool from the company to sort of push that agenda through the app? Uh, yeah, absolutely. They have to do absolutely everything they can, because if this doesn't pass, they're in big trouble. And if, if they can't operate in California because of the size and the influence of California, I think it does put some of its other businesses in into um, make them much more questionable. And also, too, because even a couple of years ago, Uber had operations all over the world. Right. But they've been pulling back. I mean, obviously, that company has been very troubled. They had a really chaotic, uh, crazy chief executive for a long time and Travis Kalanick. And um, and also, you know, SoftBank in Japan has invested in, in Uber, along with many other ride sharing companies around the world. And through SoftBank, I mean, uh, Masayoshi Sun has decided to basically make sure that these companies are not competing in the same market because it's driving the prices way down. So basically, these companies have divided up the world and the US, and Uber is in the U.S., but it's no longer in, in many Asian countries like, like it used to be uh, because there's local competitors on the ground. So the scope of the business is not nearly as big as it was, actually, in terms of um, you know, market size than just a couple of years ago. It's much smaller now. Um, so it has to it has to be proactive. This is a do or die kind of uh, initiative. I was thinking about you know the approach. I mean, it's clear that you have to do everything you can, but then what is the most effective way to do that? Um, and I think that would be this is one of those situations where it's a you're embarking on a campaign, and you need to have very clear messages. And I haven't seen them, but you would want to make it very clear about the benefits to the drivers in the current situation, the benefits to the passengers in the current situation and why, uh, if this doesn't pass, you know, what is going to happen? What is the scenario? Uh, what do they lose? And I mean, those are messages that you'd want to be driving home. You'd want to make those very clear. You don't want to send a uh, five page <laughs> report on this. You want clear messages on these things and repeat them. They should have TV commercials. They should be on radio. They should be everywhere. Um, in the app, I think it, I mean, it is distracting if you if you open the app and it, it whisks you off to a page, uh, political page or something. I think it should do that maybe once, but I think it should say, look, and it should say, you know, we need it. If someone's opening that app, it means they're either driving for Uber or they're taking Uber, right? Which means they're a customer in some way. Right. And so these are the people that you need supporting you. So yes, we, there should be a message sent there somewhere or a dialogue box or a, a pop-up or something that says, hey, can you take a look at this? It's important. Um, and then after they do that once, not bring it up again, uh, maybe just before election day, perhaps. Um, but that would, that would be off the top of my head. But I think this sort of thing would require, this is the sort of thing where you sit down with your own communications team, you sit down with your government affairs team, and you sit down maybe with, a, with an agency and really brainstorm this, you know, the plan of attack between now and, uh, and election day, which is 74 days away or something like that. It'd be, yeah, it'd be, it'd be, a, it'd be a fun thing to do. Yeah. That makes that, that, that makes sense. And I get it. You see these sorts of situations in the legal world as well. These all or nothing cases where, you know, a company is prepared to spend whatever yeah. they need to spend from a legal perspective, because they understand that if they lose the company's done. 
So you throw everything at the wall and you hope something sticks. You know, here in Hong Kong, Uber is still not legal. Um, but I mean, Uber in its previous incarnation, I mentioned Travis Kalanick. I mean, he went into markets and just literally just disobeyed the law and did whatever he felt like. And he did that here. In fact, the government said you cannot drive Uber. They even arrested drivers. Uh, but they, but they kept going. If you open Uber here and I do take it from time to time, um, there's still drivers doing it cause they're making money through it. Um, but in Hong Kong, you know, if, if, if there was a disagreement like this here or, uh, a, a, a law that passed here, Uber could walk away and go, well, that's too bad. You know, we, we lost one market, but so be it. California is not like that. California is critical to, to those companies. And so, yeah. um, they're, they're much more important than any other state and probably, uh, other countries as well. Um, and that's why they have to really throw everything at this that they've got. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, Ewan. Um, I don't know if you saw this last week. I think there was so much news last week that maybe this was overshadowed a little bit, uh, but it came across my desk and uh, it was another one of those instances where I thought, uh-huh, I wonder what's going to happen. There was a baseball game last week between the Cincinnati Reds and the Kansas City Royals. The game was held in Kansas City and it was broadcast on Fox Sports Ohio. Do you, are you familiar with this? Is this ringing any bells yet, Ewan? No, no, I didn't hear anything about this. All right. So the pregame show was underway. I mean, with baseball now, too, I mean, there's no no fans in the stands or anything like that. But the, the pregame show was underway. It was at commercial. And then it went back uh, to the broadcast team, which didn't realize that it was on the air. Oh, no. And I'm going to play this. There is uh, an expletive in this. I'm putting out the warning now. Actually, it's more of a uh, a very derogatory term. Uh, so, so pause now or cover your kids ears. Uh, here's, here's what happened, uh, on that broadcast. The fag capitals of the world. Reds live, the pregame show presented by racing. Did you catch that? Oh, I sure did. Wow. So, um, the person, uh, who said that, uh, is a guy named, uh, Brenneman. Tom Brenneman, uh, and he is a, a longtime uh, baseball uh, broadcaster in Cincinnati. His father, I think, is in the Hall of Fame, uh, who is also a broadcaster. So, I mean, this is his whole life is around this. Uh, and he made those remarks. Obviously, that would have ignited a bit of a firestorm. Uh, and then not long after this, he had to reckon with this on the air. So this is the same baseball game, not long after he made that remark, because it was announced that they would pull him off the air mid-baseball game and replace him with another play-by-play guy. And here is what he had to say before that happened. And I want to mention there's one odd thing in here. Mid-apology, a Cincinnati player hits a home run. So there's a little bit of a... There's a little bit of a, a weird sort of interlude in between this apology, but but have a listen. I made a comment earlier tonight that uh, I guess uh, went out over the year that I am deeply ashamed of. Um, if I have hurt anyone out there, I can't tell you how much I say from the bottom of my heart, I'm so very, very sorry. 
I pride myself and think of myself as a, a man of faith. As there's a drive in a deep left field by Castellanos, it will be a home run. And so that'll make it a 4 nothing ball game. I don't know if I'm going to be putting on this headset again. I don't know if it's going to be for the Reds. I don't know if it's going to be for my bosses at Fox. I want to apologize for the people who signed my paycheck. For the Reds, for Fox Sports Ohio, for the people I work with, for anybody that I've offended here tonight. I can't begin to tell you how deeply sorry I am. That is not who I am uh, and never has been. And I'd like to think maybe I could have some people that uh, that could back that up. I am very, very sorry, and I beg for your forgiveness. Hmm. Okay. Was he sincere? Did he did he uh, convince you? Well, look, I'm I'm sure he was sincere by the end there. I mean, he 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 clearly is aware of the fact he's going to lose his job, that his reputation is destroyed. He'll never be in the uh, Hall of Fame like his father. Um, I mean, he's 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 cooked. I, but what I always find so difficult about some of these apologies is that, you know, you always hear this sentiment of like, it's not who I am. And, and the comment with regard to his uh, being a man of faith, as if somehow that has any bearing on making a homophobic remark. I, I mean, I, 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 I never really quite understand why that's one of the sort of go-to that, comments. That's the one thing that actually kind of bothered me to some degree in that apology, because it actually draws negative attention to people with faith. It hurts other people who actually do have faith and and live out those faiths every day, because clearly he's not a very good representative of that based on based on the remark he had made. Uh, previously. No, and look, and this is, and here's the thing, Cam. I mean, you know, we all say things that are inappropriate from time to time that we regret, but it's something entirely different to just so casually pull out, uh, you know, a homophobic slur like that. I mean, that those aren't the sorts of comments that you just casually make. You know, maybe you accidentally drop an f bomb, or you, you know, you say something, you, you swear, or, or or drop another expletive in front of a, a boss or a colleague or something because you're upset and it and it's inappropriate. But you know, a racial slur or a homophobic remark. I mean, that has to come from somewhere deep rooted, deep down inside. That that is the word that you grasp for. Um, and, and I'm sorry, I think, you know, I think clearly that that is part of who he is I mean, if, to be able to make a, a remark like that so casually seconds before, you know, you're going back on the air. Um, I mean, that certainly suggests that it's a comment he probably makes with some frequency frequency. The fag capitals of the world. Now, I played that again because it's his tone that I find quite startling. It's very dismissive it's very derogatory it's it's a somewhat aggressive it sounds somewhat angry um that's the part it wasn't um i mean there's never an okay time to to use this sort of uh, a homophobic slur but even in the way he delivered it i think it made it worse and so this is a big issue uh in the united states in general with so-called cancel culture 
all of these sorts of uh, incidents. This is merely the, the latest one uh, that we have to contend with. So I do want to mention what happened after this. So he was taken off the, 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 the broadcast and the Cincinnati Reds. So, so this is a little bit complicated, but oftentimes when a, when a sports franchise has a, a contract to give to a, a broadcast team, sometimes they employ them themselves. So the Cincinnati Reds actually suspended him. Uh, almost immediately after that. Uh, Brenneman did release his own statement, and he uh, released it from a company called Steinlight Media, which I looked up, and it is a PR firm in New York City that deals with sports. I see they've got a lot of sports clients. Uh, And the statement said, I would like to sincerely apologize for the inappropriate comments I made during last night's telecast. I made a terrible mistake. To the LGBTQ community and all people I've hurt or offended, from the bottom of my heart, I am truly sorry. I respectfully ask for your grace and forgiveness. The Cincinnati Reds, for their part, also put out a statement uh, that said the organization is devastated by the horrific homophobic remark. They said that they will address the rest of their broadcasting team in the coming days and also said the LGBTQ plus community in Cincinnati, Kansas City and all across this country and beyond. Sorry, apologized uh, to all of those people and beyond. And then Fox Sports Ohio also obviously said that the, the comment was hateful, offensive and does not uh, reflect the values of Fox Sports Ohio. Um, so that's where we're at. The Steinlight Media was interesting. I, I, I did look it up, like I said. Uh, interestingly, the um, the principal behind that, uh, who has the surname Steinlight, follows me on Twitter. <laughs> I was very tempted to give him a, a message to bring him on the show, but I don't think he's going to talk about this subject. No, maybe um, maybe we should. <laughs> as much as as much as it would be great to get him on, um, but I think that the the issue here really isn't even what what he said this time in this in this baseball game. The question is, should people? lose their careers for these kinds of uh, offenses. And I have to tell you, I don't think that's an easy question to answer because I, I, I can understand on both sides. Like to me, the, the statement itself is just, there's no, there's no way to justify that in any way. It's not like it was out of context or it's not like it's kind of a, a word on, on the line. Like some people take it some way, some don't like, it's very clearly a slur and he very clearly said it in, in, and he meant it to be a slur. So it's, it's just not, not debatable at all. Um, but then the question of, okay, should people lose their, 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 uh, their careers for that? That's a very tough question. I don't have an answer for it. Well, look, you know, let, let's put the politics aside. Let's put cancel culture aside and let's, you know, just for the sake of, of, of argument, because we can, let's look to look to it from a legal framework. You know, I'm thinking if, if this was, I'm going to just move, move it from Cincinnati to, to Ontario here for, for the sake of convenience and assume that this was a Toronto Blue Jays broadcast um, if that slur was dropped, you know, that's cause it's cause for discharge. Absolutely. In a, in a legal framework, you terminate that employee and you pay them nothing. And why? Because they have, they have immediately and significantly compromised your brand. They're a high profile member of the business and they are there to promote and grow the brand. And if you impact the brand significantly from the company's perspective, that's it. I mean, yeah, you can be gone, even though it's an isolated, an isolated incident, you could make a compelling argument in that situation that it's cause for discharge. Even if the guy had been a great employee for, 
for a number of years. I think that there's a that there's a compelling argument there. And that's a legal perspective. That's sort of removing any of the other aspects of it um, where we can sort of engage in some of that that gray area conduct. I but, think some people you know, misunderstand that point that you're making um, as well. People see it as some sort of. Um, uh, you know, punishment for, for saying the wrong thing, kind of people want to be thought police. And so they see him a, a little bit as a victim and not, I'm, I'm not even talking about him specifically, Brenneman specifically, but just in general, sort of the people who who end up getting called out for, for, for their behavior. But, but you made a very good point. It's, it's, it's about the, the brand and it's about what they stand for. So I cannot think under what, what kind of circumstance you could put him back on the air calling a regular baseball game again because it's going to draw so much attention and it's going to draw so much attention to the Cincinnati Reds and to Fox Sports Ohio because then the complaint goes beyond Brenneman and goes to his bosses and the owners of the baseball team saying why you're okay with this you having him back on means you're okay with what he said and even if they come out and say that they're not okay which they have done it gives the impression that they're okay with it and and I do kind of have a problem with this. I think it's really unfortunate that we can never tell who's sincere, who's not. We, 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 I mean, we assume that this is obviously part of who he is based on the way he said it. It certainly sounds that way. Um, but there's no way to know for sure. And if he's losing a lot, I think, um, I think he has to, to be taken off the air. Again, if I'm looking at this from a PR perspective, we talked about this with the Sarah Cooper, I think her name, yeah, from a, a long time ago, the, uh, in central park, um, the sort of racist woman in central park. Um, you, you, you can't associate your brand with that at all, at all. You just got to move on, uh, and not, and, and get this behind them as quickly as they can for him. It's unfortunate because yeah, obviously his entire, his father's life and his life have been in, in, in baseball and in calling games. I think I read he was, he's done it for 27 years for the Cincinnati Reds. I mean, that's a long time. So this is devastating to him. I'm sure it's going to be devastating to him, um, but he should have been more careful. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and again, this is, this is also just a problem with professional sports. And we've talked about this before that, you know, particularly with the NHL, right? The NHL has an image and a branding problem in this regard and that, you're often seeing instances of sort of misogynistic commentary or homophobic commentary. And as such, if you want to grow your brand, and attract a new and broader audience, you have to condemn this kind of content. And again, that's like putting the legal issues aside for a moment and looking at it more from a, from a business perspective or a, you know, a political social perspective. I mean, you know, it's funny, just you're, you're reminding me earlier this week, Cam, there was uh, a play by play guy here in, in that, that calls NHL games, um, whose name, no, this is, you want to say it's, it's Mike, Mike Milbury. Something. Yeah. Mike Milbury. He's not in Canada though. He's with, uh, he's with NBC. Um, he's actually a former Boston Bruins GM and I think he was with the Islanders as well, but yes, it, it's very good that you just brought this up. I'm glad you, you reminded me of it. Um, uh, but he did, did. Yeah. Did you see, did you see or hear the, the comment that he made? And this was live on air. This yeah. wasn't even, uh, you know, it wasn't an off air, off air comment. He, um, well, the baseball one comment. was on air too. Sorry? <laughs> the baseball one was on air too, just inadvertently on air. Right, right. Well, but this was actually during the game. This was, you know, there was no, there's no argument that, well, he didn't mean to say it on air or he didn't know that people were listening. And it was, you know, it wasn't, it was a comment. I've got the clip. Talking about, I've got the clip. Let's Sorry? play. I've got the clip. Let's play it. We'll hear, okay. We'll yeah, hear okay what he, great. I just, just pulled it up. Let's hear what he has to say. Come here and play hockey. And it, it, if you think about it, it's a terrific environment with regards to if you enjoy playing and enjoy being with your teammates for long periods of time, it's a perfect place. 
Not even any woman had to disrupt their concentration. Oh, and also, too, no travel. So he said, and so uh, to be clear, they're, they're, they're playing hockey in a bubble. So obviously the players are all trapped in there until the end of the playoffs. And he made the remark that there's no women to distract them. And the interesting part of that clip is that the, his, his colleagues, there's three in the booth. Nobody said, a, nobody said a word just went by like no, any other comment. They, they just, they just, they just moved on. And I, you know, I saw Sarah, Sarah Spain who works with ESPN. She, she has sent out a great tweet that I retweeted. And all she said was fellas, what are we doing and why? And for how much longer? <laughs> and I really think it sort of underscores again, the point, right? Um, you want to grow your brand. You want to attract a newer, broader audience. This isn't the way that you do it. Um, so, yeah, I think businesses, they have to take a strong stance um, from a business perspective because it's impacting the bottom line, right? Um, but again, I think in the Reds case, even putting the business case, the political case, the political issues aside, there's a compelling legal argument to say, look, you know, he's impacting your brand. It's detrimental to your brand. He's a public face of the brand and he really screwed up. It's cause for discharge. Let him go. The end. Yeah. <laughs> Last thing I want to say on this too, I think um, it's interesting that these comments, especially the one by Mike Milbury, said without a, a care in the world and uh, not even the faintest idea that it might be it, it problematic. In the, in the baseball example, they were off at break. So clearly he knew that it wasn't okay for on air, but at the same time, he obviously thought it was fine to say I mean, that it's just fine to make those remarks because he said it so casually. And I, I think when people talk about sort of um, white privilege or, or these kinds of things, I think this is kind of what people are talking about to some degree. It's these remarks that people don't even think twice about because it's natural to them. It's okay. No one's going to call them on. It's just part of it's just part of the normal course of business in the day. And that's changing obviously. And so people who remain saying these things and keep saying these things are now getting called out more and more, which I think is good. Um, but, but it's, it's a, it's certainly a learning process for them, but clearly they've got a long way to go. And especially in sports, like we've talked about. Yeah. And that's the, that's, you hit the nail on the head there that it's normal course, that this sort of discussion, this sort of language is inherent and indicative of the culture. We're not talking about something that was, was, you know, an individual was provoked in such a way that they then came out with this grossly inappropriate comment from deep down. I mean, this is just normal course. And that almost makes it worse that just in a casual off the cuff fashion, they can drop these kinds of comments. And that's, what's really, really problematic about it for me. I want to close by saying, saying one thing here. I mean, I'm not coming on either side of the, the so-called cancel culture, which is a whole show or podcast series unto itself. So we're not going to get into all of that here. But I will say, though, I'm not up for piling on. I think, uh, I mean, clearly, I have no doubt that this baseball uh, broadcaster is mortified about the fallout of his remarks. He may even feel as though he is a victim or he has been treated unjustly. I'm sure he probably does feel that way. Um, and I think he's seen his life's work suddenly called into question. He's not, there's always going to be this now after his 27 years in the business, this one comment overshadows all of that. And if that were me, I would be absolutely devastated, absolutely devastated because you've lost your standing among your peers. And so this is not to say he should or should not be punished, but I do feel like, okay, he made the remark. He's been suspended. 
He'll probably be removed. He'll probably lose his position. We don't need to pile on after that. I think he will never, ever forget this beyond today. You know, my last point on this, Cam, is we're also assuming that this was an isolated case or a one-off. Again, given the circumstances, if I was advising the employer, I would want to investigate the matter further. I'd want to speak with some of his colleagues. This could quite possibly be a pattern of behavior that's long existed and nobody's spoken up about it in the past. And maybe they will now. And usually if there's one case, there are others. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no. Wait, wait. Check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in law podcast. All right. I will uh, mention one thing here and I have to comp to this. I have not even read this yet. Um, I have talked before on the show. I'm a huge fan of the Atlantic. I think they just do excellent work. I've known some people who work there. Uh, James Follows is one of their longest serving uh, columnists or authors, writers who I do know personally to some degree. We've emailed back and forth and sort of shared some some, some ideas and things like that. Um, but I, I think their writing is excellent. And I'm very happy to say that they're, by the way, they're not sponsoring the show. I'm not being paid to say this. Um, but they, um, they've done, they've, done amazing work during the the pandemic in fact and uh, i know that their paid subscriptions and their their traffic is way up which is good news Uh, but they have done another uh, feature and it relates to something we've talked about before and the title is what ellen's kindness concealed and the subtitle is the recent scandal at her talk show suggests that the host's smiling facade covers up something dark and hints at why that facade had to be created in the first place And I will put a link to this. Uh, When we wrap up the show, this is the first thing that I will be uh, reading when I go to bed shortly. Uh, And I I think what it hints at is something I think I mentioned on the previous show when we when we talked about Ellen. I'll put a link in the show notes. I can't remember if it's episode 16 or or 15 or somewhere around there Um, that. It has been known for a very long time that she's been, you know, not a nice person. And I think I mentioned that Adam Carolla, another longtime podcaster, uh, said that oftentimes the people that put on the nicest character on screen are the ones that are the least nice off screen and that it's a compensation. And uh, this looks like it's going down that path, this article. Hmm. Okay. I'll have to, uh, you, you can perhaps read it while you're going to bed and uh, I'll read it while I pour yeah. another cup of coffee, Cam. So <laughs> I need a cup of coffee. <laughs> Uh, what have you got dog um so i cam i'm sure you've probably heard this this particular uh sentiment or phrase over the past few months people saying to you oh yeah you know it's just it's it's groundhog day every day is exactly (laughs) the same yes um i i've i've heard this so many times and um i have never seen the movie groundhog day the 1993 movie with with Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Um, and it occurred to me that I, I was dropping my my daughter off at preschool and I was speaking with one of the uh, the, the preschool teachers and just saying, hey, how, you know, how are you doing? How have things been with you? And again, well, you know, you and it's, it's just Groundhog Day. Every day is exactly the same. And I came home and, you know, later that evening before I went to bed, I was reading a, uh, a top 50 movies uh, on Netflix. It was a New York Times article. And one of the films on the list was Groundhog Day. And I said, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to find time. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch Groundhog Day. And I did it yesterday afternoon. I should have been doing some work, but I was just, oh, wow. I was tired. I'd had a busy week and I thought, you know what? Now's the time. Let's, let's do it. Let's, let's dance, Bill Murray. So I, I sat down and I watched Groundhog Day. And you know what? 
it's a pretty it's a pretty great movie. Um, you know, it's almost 30 years old. So obviously (laughs) from an employment lawyer perspective, there's all kinds of issues. I mean, you basically have Bill Murray, um, making a bunch of inappropriate moves on, uh, his producer. Uh, (laughs) so, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of sort of, um, Gen- gender politic issues there and and employment law issues there but if we can sort of put that aside and i and and uh, i think you probably can because there's all <laughs> kinds of other merit to the film it, it 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 is interesting and i thought that there was a really good takeaway in this movie given what's going on and that's that you know you know the basic premise right cam bill murray mm-hmm. basically keeps living the same day i remember over and over when it came out again yep And, you know, he sort of starts off basically just really, really upset about the idea. And he goes through this sort of transitionary process. And it almost was sort of in keeping with many people's approach through the through the pandemic as well. Right. He's sort of there's periods of kind of dismay and he's bitter and then there's sort of despair and then he tries to to kill himself repeatedly and there's just this total cynicism but then he he start he turns a corner and he decides that well wait a minute there's an opportunity here and he takes the fact that he keeps repeating the same day over and over again and he starts to learn things and that was the sort of the takeaway for me and i was thinking about this show and the fact that really we probably wouldn't be doing this were it not for for the pandemic um i know we had been talking about doing something like this for years but i think the pandemic was really sort of the catalyst it was the kick in the ass we needed to to get going um you know and i and i think that that's sort of a great takeaway from this movie bill murray learns to play the piano he learns to do learns to read he reads french poetry he learns all these sort of new and interesting things on account of the fact that he just keeps living the same day over and over and over again so um i hope that our our listeners and the people out there that they've taken this time or going forward will take this time to to learn something new, either about themselves or perhaps a new trade or a new hobby or, or something. Cause I think there really is this sort of wonderful opportunity here to, to get out and do something new. All right. You in with the way back track there going with the 93 movie. I like it. I do remember when it came out. I haven't watched it either. Um, and I think you make a very good point. I think, um, there is a lot of time, to, or maybe not necessarily a lot of time, but being home, not being able to go out, that, that, that means you're maybe not sitting in a restaurant, or you're not going to a movie out, or you're not uh, you know, meeting friends out somewhere. And so that time can be put to good use if you've got some, some interests and hobbies and things like that. Unfortunately, I mean, especially here in Hong Kong, um, I do know quite a few people without hobbies <laughs> if they're very work-focused, which I think is a whole other sort of issue for, for people to deal with if they're in that boat. Um, but I, I think you're right. I mean, for us, we've, we've launched the podcast. I mean, I've done some other things as well, um, working on sort of side projects that I'm interested in that I've been able to give a little more attention to. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's, that's really the upside, um, of this, but I think, and it just hit me even today and yesterday, um, I was thinking about travel again, something reminded me and I thought, you know, I would like now some sort of break in this routine because, 
like I'm not angry or upset or or bored even, but it, it the monotony is kind of setting in a little bit. Like a whole year is going by where I haven't stepped on an airplane. I mean, I did fly in in, in January. I haven't taken a day off work. I haven't taken one day off work this year. Um, things like that. You just think it does feel weird when it just is repetitive day after day, even though you are being productive. And I think, uh, vacations, travel, meeting family, friends, going out, doing things. Those are, those are the really nice sort of breaks in your day to day routine and responsibilities. And we're without those at the moment. And it's been fine with me for a very long time, but I think now I'm starting to feel a little bit of that. Yeah. And and I get that. And I get that. And I think it's, you know, it's also, it's easy to say, Hey, go out and learn to speak a new language or, um, you know, learn to bake. Um, you have to want you know, to do it too. It's got to be something. Yeah, you, ha- in. you have to. You have to feel motivated, and, and it's often very, very difficult to feel motivated with what's going on. But uh, I, you know, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever we need to do to sort of smack ourselves across the face and 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 get up and and get motivated. You know, try, 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 and 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 look at what's going on as an opportunity because it is. It is an opportunity. You're right. All of those other things that you might otherwise be doing under normal circumstances. If it does free a unit of time, it's a unit of time you can use that way. to learn to do something else. Um, so, you know, try, just, just, just try, set aside 15 minutes in your schedule, you know, block it off in your calendar or, or what have you, um, also, to do something, something new and different. We have this newfangled worldwide web uh, that we can go surfing on to find information. It's really cool. And I recommend people use it <laughs> because you can find out how to do almost anything, read about almost anything. Even to this day, Ewan, I, I am surprised. Sometimes people ask me a question about something or how would I know about that? Or how can I you know, do this? And I think you don't think about going to Google. Like everyone knows we can go to Google to do things, but we can go to it for almost everything. Like there's a lot there that I don't even think cross people's mind a lot of the time. Um, and I think we've never had more opportunity at our fingertips than we do now, because even if you're just starting a blog or a music class, or you can almost do all of that, advertise it, launch it, get it running all through the internet. And so make use of this amazing resource that previous generations never had. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and, you know, again, don't, sometimes that can be really overwhelming though, right? The idea that it's, it's almost like stepping out into the abyss, just this big black, openness and it's hard to know where to begin and as you know cam i'm i'm a research nerd it's it's probably part of why i ended up being a lawyer in the first place i love to research topics exhaustively um any major purchases i make i i feel compelled to sort of research them exhaustively but i think you know if you you have to apply some sort of framework because otherwise it can be overwhelming so make a list, start. What is it that you want to learn about? You know, maybe you want to learn to play, um, you want to learn to play guitar. Well then make a list. What, you know, what kind of music are you interested in? If you're looking to buy guitar, what kind of, what's your price point? I mean, you you create a list of all of these points and, and, and the framework, and then it becomes a little less overwhelming so that when you start doing that research, you step onto Google or what have you, you have a framework that you're working within, right? It's almost like an outline for an essay that we are sort of taught to do in, in high school, create an outline for yourself. And I think once you have something jotted down on paper, that general outline, that framework, then everything else can kind of quickly fall into place. 
I want to add one thing to that before we sign off. Um, the other thing I would add is um, when you do a search for something that you're looking for or something that you're interested in, maybe starting or studying or whatever, and you click a link and you end up on a page with information, a lot of people read the information, close the tab, and that's it. And I encourage you to, if the information is useful, if it's written away where you think, yes, I have to save this, look at the name of the site, go to the homepage. Do they have other stuff? Is this really helpful? And then bookmark it save it. Actually, after a few weeks of reading about a subject, you'll end up with two or three or four really, really good sources of information that you can save and delete all the others. You don't need to go across the entire internet, but almost on every subject, there's going to be a couple of really useful sites where people who are already doing what you're thinking of doing have written about it. And you want to find those and then you can follow those. And it makes it a lot less uh, overwhelming when you're going through that process. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice too. Anything else, dog, before we uh, put this one in the books? I think that's it. That's it. All right. Yeah, we talked about a lot of stuff today, so that's uh, that's good. Always always lively, Ewan, even though it's uh, 20 minutes to 1 o'clock in the morning, Hong Kong time. I'm going to bed. So anyway, go to bed. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much uh, for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. It's the only way we have to get uh, word out about the show. So that means a lot to us. Uh, You can follow us on social media on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The account name is PR Law Podcast. And we're also on YouTube and SoundCloud as well. So you can subscribe from uh, either of those and support us on Patreon. Just visit our website, prlawpodcast.com and click support the show. So, for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word. P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. Cam and Ewan, strong guys.